Welcome to Offshoot, the Fight and Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then, we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple. Supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Welcome to episode 15 of Offshoot with Jeff Brown. Jeff partnered with his friend, John Southland, in 2011 to do just a single deal, which led to doing two or three more until they depleted their personal investment capital. From there, the idea of T2 Capital Management was born. Since 2011, they've gone into multiple markets, property types, and investment strategies, and the mid-sized team of 14 people Jeff's built have deployed over $1.5 billion into both debt and equity investments. Jeff is quite thoughtful and has a lot to say here. Listen in as he covers grounding your business, your expectations, and your actions in reality, always hiring for high capacity and high caliber people, using industry collaboration as a navigational tool in uncertain moments or uncertain times, resolving to capture scale anytime you choose to enter a new market, the value of securing concurrence from both debt and equity partners, the power of aligning strong convictions with a defensible strategy, being more than the work you do or your ability to bring home dollars, and being aligned with your why. There are no shortcuts. Systems and process create efficiency, but there's simply no substitute for the grind. Knowing that your business strategy is for right now and subject to change. Doing the work to fix impaired relationships. I hope you enjoy the pod. Welcome everyone to another episode of Offshoot. Today I've got Jeff Brown, co-founder, CEO, and co-CIO of T2 Capital Management joining me. Jeff and his partner, John Southard, started T2 in 2011. Since then, as a middle market fund manager and operator, T2 has deployed over $1.5 billion across the entire capital stack and among virtually all property types. The firm's niche is swiftly executing value-add and opportunistic investments where they can deploy anywhere from 2 to $50 million. With their discretionary funds, T2 actively pursues lending and direct ownership opportunities, which are often complex and time-sensitive. Jeff's team has significant vertical integration with engineering, construction, leasing, and property management skills in-house. The company's most recent investments have primarily consisted of multifamily and student housing properties within the southeastern U.S. As CEO, Jeff works on corporate growth initiatives, investment strategies, and providing operational oversight. As CIO, he oversees the origination, underwriting, and day-to-day management of T2's investments. Jeff began his career in real estate in the mid-1990s, working for a national consumer finance company that was acquired by Wells Fargo. That was followed by tenure at a Michigan-based family office, which also functioned as a hedge fund of funds. Jeff's a native Texan, but received his MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and his bachelor's degree from Wheaton College, both in the great state of Illinois, where Jeff currently lives, 
and where T2 bases its operations. Fun fact, while at Wheaton College, Jeff was captain and starting quarterback for Wheaton's first appearance in the NCAA playoffs. In that season, he passed for 30 touchdowns and 3,247 yards, which, if compared to last season's NFL production, places him just under Russell Wilson in terms of yardage and tied with Geno Smith for TDs. That's not bad company, Jeff. Welcome to Offshoot. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> really appreciate that. That's uh, It's been a long time since I've thought about those stats, but <laughs> thank you for the context. Yeah, hey, it's, it's always good to have a uh, sports celebrity on the on the show. So um, to to get us started, if you could, um, you know, I know I gave you a little bit of an intro there on T two, but in, in your words, what's T two all about, and, and um, you know, what's happening in the business right now? Where are you guys seeing in terms of opportunity and challenge? Yeah, in, incredible times. Yeah, here we sit. Uh, you know, mid April twenty twenty three, we're a month removed from three major bank failures, uh, not just in the United States, but globally, Credit Suisse, Silicon Valley Bank, and Signature Bank out of New York. Um, I think three months ago, I don't know that anybody saw that sort of scale of bank failure coming. Um, so, but here it is upon us and we're all dealing with it. At T2, I'm, you know, we're, we're not much different than a lot of other folks, just kind of trying to make sense of, of what's going on in the market and people's, you know, namely uh, lenders and investors reactions to these bank failures and the spike in interest rates and elevated construction costs, while also looking at it from an opportunistic standpoint. There are a lot of dislocations happening, some forced sales uh, from existing property owners that we're trying to pay attention to. And uh, so for, you know, really kind of get in the weeds a little bit, for the longest time, we have been very active. We've got a very active bridge lending fund. We've got a very active opportunistic fund that is uh, really specializes in ground up construction and growth markets around the country, particularly in the Southeast. We've transitioned a bit from originating debt and doing the ground up construction to buying debt in the secondary market. And then conversely, on our equity side, buying properties that are already existing and just have some sort of balance sheet distress at this point in time, a distressed seller, whatever the case may be. So um, just different times and, and trying to be adaptable as we are as a, a small company. Yeah. Look, I know you also wear two hats. Um, you're, you're both CEO and CIO. So just in terms of, in, in, I mean, in your words, a bit of a turbulent time, what do those two hats look like? What's got the, the CEO mandate and where are you focused as CIO? Because I know you're both uh, an asset manager with an existing portfolio. You guys have done $1.5 billion of, of business since inception. And, um, you know, you're also charged with navigating turbulent times. So how does that show up for you in terms of wearing those two hats? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. They are distinctly different hats and I, I thoroughly enjoy both of them. On the CEO side, because of the turbulence that's out there and the distress that's out there, and, and frankly, a lot of the headlines and the press that we all see and, and read, there is a fair amount of, you know, we, we say a lot around here, just getting grounded in reality. You know, what's what's true? Uh, what's What can we act upon? What Where can we invest? As opposed to, you know, what, what's, what are, you know, major problems that we need to put all hands on deck for? This is not March of 2020, and it's not September of 07 either. 
So we're trying to, from a CEO perspective, trying to put a bit of a more opportunistic, let's be on offense sort of mentality and instilling that across the company. Uh, from a CIO perspective, it's similar, I suppose, but you know, again, we're not trying to be a Pollyanna about it either. There are issues that come with you know, this rise in interest rates. When SOFA rises from five basis points to the four and a half-ish percent that it is today, that is, that is huge and has material impacts on people's cash flows and properties. We, we just witnessed, I think it was yesterday even, maybe earlier this week, uh, a large you know, 3,000 plus unit apartment portfolio in, in Houston uh, get turned back over to the lender. And even the lender didn't recover 100% of their capital. That's the kind of stuff that's happening today for properties that you know, were likely bought at the height of the market, were capitalized with some floating rate debt, and so you've got this conundrum of rising rates and fall in, I'm sorry, and rising cap rates as well. Uh, so some, uh, you know, some distress that's emerging out there. Uh, nobody's immune from it. And so trying to make sure we have a firm hand on the steering wheel from an asset management perspective and uh, not just not just protect our value and protect our assets, you know, manage the heck out of them from what we can control. But, you know, the macroeconomics that we cannot control you know, we do our best to navigate that and just acknowledge that we, you know, we don't want to sell some things right now when it might be an upper, you know, might be time to sell them per our fun life. But, you know, thankfully we've got to be patient and wait this out a little bit and then we'll see where things shake out in the next few months. But so it is a very different perspectives, uh, but some similarities when a, between a CEO and what a co-CIO role looks like. Yeah, and look, I'll let everybody in on a, a bit of a, a little secret here. Jeff and I did this once before, and I'll blame the technology. It might be just more blaming myself for n not operating the technology properly. So this is kind of a 2.0 on the recording. But um, we spoke last time, Jeff, a fair bit about industry collaboration and you know that, that idea of getting grounded in reality. Um, it sounds like you spend a fair bit of time with an ear to the ground, talking to other professionals, uh, other people who are active participants in the marketplace, and that that is a material component of, um, if you will, navigating uh, uncertain times. You, you have any comments on that? You're, you're spot on, Kevin, I, and I appreciate you bringing that up. It's you know, one of the things that we talked about in our prior conversation is just the, um, the blessing and the uh, complexities that come with being an entrepreneur even. And so, you know, it's not just wearing a CIO, CEO sort of hat, among other things in, in this business, uh, but HR and, and other sorts of components to running a company that um, that can make or break you in the long run. And so, you know, as an entrepreneur, it can be a little lonely sometimes, especially when you're starting out. So I put a high bar on having trusted confidants that maybe have been there and done that. Others that are going through the same thing right now, maybe starting their own company or in the real estate space as an entrepreneur. And so there, there is a fair amount of time of not just comparing notes, trying to apply best practices across industries, um, but getting grounded in reality. And, and what we talk a lot about among these confidants is just doing sanity checks, making sure what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're adhering to, um, maybe some investment thesis that we're considering that we're not out in left field, um, or if we are, at least we know it. Um, so that sort of, again, grounded in reality, no comparison with other trusted confidants who are going through similar experiences or have gone through similar experiences in the past is, uh, is invaluable to me.
Mm-hmm. And look, you, you brought it up as far as uh, it can be a little lonely out on the front or getting going on your own. How is it that you actually found your way into T2? I, I mean, I think you've got a pretty significant team and we'll get into the, the different verticals with the, the debt portfolio and the equity shop. Um, but how did you get here? How did you get from, you know, collegiate ball into being a CEO of a pretty substantial real estate company? So yeah, you're, you're kind. I, I graduated from Wheaton College here in Wheaton, Illinois in the mid-1990s and went to work for a, a family office out in Michigan. Uh, a fair amount of the family holdings for the office that I worked for was in real estate. Uh, we were a small shop at the time. And so as a, a really young, recent college graduate, I was you know, an, an analyst, a grunt, if you will, frankly, doing a lot of work on the asset management side for this real estate portfolio. And the portfolio consisted of a wide variety of properties. It was you know, some standard triple net leased properties, but it was also uh, you know, ski resorts out west. And so um, cut my teeth on a wide variety of property types, um, looking at each property, you know, defining success for each property was, was different as well. So I, I had this incredible exposure at a really young age to real estate, grew enamored with it, and that really propelled my career. Um, I went from there to work with a, a small commercial real estate debt shop, um, worked there for eight or nine years. We had multiple offices throughout the Midwest, really got hamstrung in the great financial crisis in 07, 08. At that same time, I was getting my MBA at the University of Chicago. And so as, you know, again, back to this entrepreneurial thing and, and wanting to do sanity checks and understand what's going on, uh, did a kind of that with a couple of my professors at Chicago they were the ones that really turned me on to the private equity industry. And uh, so I had this I had this great ambitious idea to start a private equity real estate firm. But of course, a material component to starting that is capital. Uh, so thankfully, I have a really good friend, John Southern, who's still my business partner today. Uh, John had a big liquidity event. Um, he and I started doing real estate deals on a one-off basis. I'll never forget his quote to me in, I think it was in 2009. Uh, it might have been 2010 that he said, hey, listen, I need real estate like I need a hole in my head, but I trust you. I like you. Let's do one deal together, see how it goes. Well, one deal turned into two, two turned into four, and so on from there. Eventually, the two of us who were you know, providing our own capital for these deals, um, you know, we kind of ran out of money or, or ran up against our budget. And, uh, and John had the idea of, hey, this seems really scalable. Why don't we just build a business off of it? And so that really spawned T2 and emboldened me, frankly, to take that step as an entrepreneur. And so as of January of 2011, T2 was activated um, after a long process of, you know, again, cutting my teeth on a lot of different real estate projects around the country, various projects, various property types, uh, and then having the encouragement from a, you know, a very trusted friend uh, to step out and, and start a company. Was the well? Let me let me first see if it's the case that as you dipped your toe in the water, um, what kind of vision existed for you know what you were doing, if anything? Like when when you first said, "Hey, let's go do a deal," was that step one of something that you expected to build, or was that kind of just a beta? Let's see what let's see what we got. There there was a certainly a beta aspect to it. I'll be the first to tell you. I did not certainly, I, I might've had the thought in the back of my head, but I didn't have the 
full conviction that this is going to lead to the formation of a company, you know, doing billions of dollars in transaction activity. I'd be a fool to tell you that was anywhere within the realm of possibilities at that time. So very, very grateful for, for John. We, you know, when we were doing our deals where the two of us were just capitalizing every deal that was in that 2000, yes, 2010 time period in which capital was extraordinarily scarce. And so, uh, you know, the, the story will be told as if we were shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, we, we, we could kind of pick and choose our deals. My coming out of the finance world uh, led us to a lot of buying debt in the secondary market. It led us to originating a few loans where we could really dictate our own terms. Um, and so it, it, we just had some really strong early success that led to the formation of T2, but it was with the wind at our back because capital was so sparse at that time. Yeah, perfect. Well, so uh, I love that you're sort of admitting like, yeah, I'm not sure there was a lot of vision when you started, but as you started to say, okay, hey, we could probably build a scalable platform. How did that vision, um, you know, I guess two part question, how solid was it? Part one, part two, how does it compare to the reality that you find yourself in uh, 12 years later with, with a team and a, and a, you know, a couple of different products and, and strategies that you're executing? Sure. So um, I, I tell you, and, and you hear this a lot in the big industries. Um, I think Google might have a mantra of, you know, don't be afraid to break things. There, there is, just from my vantage point, so much trial and error that goes into building a business. Uh, so for us, when we first got started, again, coming out of the finance side of things, the, the core competence, the expertise was in lending. And so we, you know, we rolled out our first fund. We started T2, rolled out our first fund, brought in outside capital for the first time. And because our expertise was in lending, um, understandably, we found ourselves back to you know buying loans in the secondary market maybe originated a few loans here and there at extraordinarily extraordinary terms and and economic returns um but but quickly found ourselves you know soliciting feedback from from clients you know what do you like what do you not like um and after a period of time got enough feedback that said hey love what you guys are doing the returns are great at this time, you know, fast forward 2011, 12, the market's starting to turn a little bit. Capital is getting more competitive. It's a more populated, kind of a crowded field. So the feedback was, love, love what you guys are doing, but, you know, you guys making loans and generating these recurring coupons and whatnot is great. I'm more interested uh, in, you know, swinging for the fences a little bit. I, I want a big IRR. I want a big multiple on my investment versus others who said, boy, I, I love what you guys are doing. Please don't deviate from this. And so it led to you know, a new strategy. So we really started with a debt strategy and it, it morphed into um, a, distinct, a distinction between you know, starting a debt fund and then having a very distinct opportunistic fund and branching out from there on the equity side. So just really segregating, again, how do you define success for a different strategy or set expectations with investors? So setting expectations on the debt side with you know, recurring, uh, in our case, quarterly income, uh, a little bit of a premium. Sometimes we're able to buy notes at a discount. So there's a little bit of a, a return that goes into these debt pieces that go beyond just the income component. But people like the steady performance of quarterly distributions. Conversely, 
there's a, a lot of people out there that say, hey, you know, the quarterly distributions are fine, but I don't need the income. Uh, so let's let's go do a big development project. Let's go do, um, you know, some opportunistic acquisition or big rehab job in which income is just, uh, you know, just not part of the equation necessarily. We're, we're trying to buy buy it low, sell high and generate a big return in that process. So really, again, not to belabor this, but just being distinctly different with what the strategies are, how you define success, being clear and communicating that to the to investors, but all birthed from a lot of trial and error and, and, and soliciting feedback from investors. Yeah, listening to the market and, and you know, sort of providing what, what they're looking for. So, uh, you know, from inception, it sounds like, you know, let's do a deal, five deals, six deals, and then you start with, with the debt fund, um, which I think you guys call it your strategic real estate income fund. Um, That's right. As I understand it from reviewing your website, did 24 loans uh, last year with over $225 million in origination. So it's become uh, a fairly significant platform. Can Before we start talking about the, the more opportunistic strategy, um, what are you guys looking for there? And what markets are you lending in? What types of loans are you doing? Is it is it construction? Is it bridge? Is it land loans? Do you have full discretion? Are you leveraged internally? Like, what's that business look like for you guys? Hmm. Yeah. So our, you're right with the name, the Strategic Real Estate Income Fund. That is our our longest. It's an open ended fund. It was started in 2014. We're about to come upon our nine year anniversary with the fund. Um. I'm sitting here in Chicago. We just uh, signed a lease a couple weeks ago to open an office in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and then, and that's largely because our, our focus for not just our debt fund, but our opportunistic funds and, and all that we do really is focused on growth markets, which lead us in our case down Southeast. So we're very active in markets like Nashville, uh, Knoxville, Orlando, Atlanta, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, trying to get a toehold down in Texas, in the Carolinas, et cetera. So that ge- geographic concentration uh, leads us to um, you know, opening an office down in Nashville. But it, it is a very deliberate geographic concentration just because that is where the population growth, uh, the job growth, the, the, you know, the relaxed tax burdens, et cetera, um, lead to greater demand, lead to the need for greater housing um, and so that's that's a, a great space, great geography for us to be. Uh, so the debt fund is very concentrated. We, we try to concentrate our efforts very um, distinctly in the southeast region of the U.S. Okay. And then as far as um, loan product, are you guys doing? I'm sure. I'm sorry. Just primarily bridge loans. Are you doing construction loans? Do you guys do land loans? You know, kind of loan sizes. Are you doing retail, office, multi? Like what, what's the strike zone? If I'm talking to you as a capital advisor, which is my day job, uh, hmm. you know, what, what kind of product is a fit for the fund? So we, the debt fund is also, also our biggest um, box, if you will, as far as what we look for. And certainly there's geographic targets that I just alluded to, um, but we have full discretion over the capital. Um, it's cash on our balance sheet. Uh, we're, we constantly take investor commitments and deploy that capital. Uh, it's all bridge lending. Uh, for us, we say it's three years and in on the term side. That can lead to a fair amount of construction lending. It's also a fair amount of even pre-development site acquisition lending. Uh, folks looking to take advantage of a, 
uh, short fuse. Maybe a, a seller has to sell and, and really wants to sell quickly. Conventional lenders may not be able to accommodate that short fuse, so we, we can. Uh, so we jump in in those situations. We're not afraid of uh, messy situations, partner buyouts, uh, litigation, liens, et cetera. We've, we've, we've been there and done that. It's not to say that we can do them all, uh, but if we can wrap our arms around it, understand it, kind of box the risk in, uh, we're not afraid of messy situations. So um, three years and in, all kinds of property types are considered. Uh, we do try to be specific with our geography. Uh, we lend anywhere from two to biggest loan we've done historically is 60 million. Uh, we're, we're even, you know, pushing that a little bit with some new opportunities coming our way. And, and like I said, we're, we're very active and uh, originators, which is consistent with what we've done historically, but are getting more and more uh, opportunities on the opportunity to buy debt from other lenders that are looking to raise some liquidity in the market. And when you're buying debt, does that stay in the debt portfolio or do you do that opportunistically where you might have a basis and a value add play that, um, you know, puts it on that side of the, the ledger, if you will? Yeah, uh, great question. And it is something that we wrestle with. It, it, it's very dependent on the situation. Um, the vast majority of debt that we buy, we do keep in the debt fund, but there are enough messy situations um, where maybe foreclosure has been filed. It does appear imminent that the lender is going to take title to the property. It's those types of situations that we would consider more strongly for opportunity equity funds. Probably if there's uh, a sort of a tangible business plan to be run as opposed to picking something up on an attractive basis, right? If you guys are going to execute the business, it goes on the equity portfolio. You got it. Right on. Okay. Cool. Well, let's switch to that side so people can understand that part of the business. Uh, are you guys on the equity side? Are you um, co-GP? Are you GP? Are you LP? How are you putting dollars into deals? So it's funny, going back to one of your earlier questions, Kevin, in the kind of the evolution of T2, when we got started in 2011, really a lender expertise and listening to the market, getting feedback, and, and then kind of segregating strategies. We've got a dedicated debt fund, dedicated equity fund. When we first started in the equity space, it was as a, an LP. So we, we tried to find really good operators that were expert in their space, in their field, had a pretty tight um, business plan or expertise, and then latched onto them from an LP side. Um, <laughs> just speaking, frankly, uh, in the mid to late 2000s, had a couple of episodes in which, you know, being that passive capital partner wasn't working very well. We, we could clearly observe some deviations in business plan or a, a, a material slowdown in construction. And it, it just didn't seem like there was the urgency necessary from our sponsor's perspective to address a situation. Um, so got, got frustrated, you know, exercised whatever rights we needed to. And, and, you know, saw a project through, but that really lit a fire under us to transition from LP capital to sponsor and GP. So as we sit today and, and really has, as has been the case since 2018 and 19, we solely buy or develop properties at this point as sole GP or co-GP. There are still a few partners with whom we co-GP deals and, and, uh, and seek to work collaboratively to get things done together. Uh, but it has been a transition. So we, we've staffed up. Uh, we've got a couple of general contractors on staff, a, a civil engineer, property manager. 
Uh, we don't self-perform in anything, not to get into the weeds too much, but we don't self-perform on any of those aspects of a project. But I take great solace in having that expertise in-house so that we really can be fantastic asset managers, uh, watch every penny, make sure uh, schedules, budgets are strictly adhered to, are involved in the conversation or if there are any deviations, change orders, whatever may come, and, uh, and make sure that we're equipped to jump in and take over to the extent that becomes necessary. Uh, so that has been a bit of an evolution here at T2. Okay. And is there a fund or two funds on that? What does that side of the business look like? So uh, we're just, uh, we've done one dedicated GP fund uh, and we're rolling out our second here in the latter half of this year is the plan. Um, Our prior funds were more, a little bit more LP centric. We started to dabble in the GP, co-GP side, um, you know, like I said, in maybe 2017, 18, but really went all in on the GP side of the ledger uh, three or four years ago now. Okay. Um, and, and I understand it's, you know, as you said, sort of the opportunistic stuff in the growth markets of the Southeast. Um, and it sounds like that could be both. Well, actually, why don't you tell me? But I, I do understand you guys will do some d- development as well as uh, adaptive reuse. So what kind of strategies are you executing there? Sure. So for us, Contra to our debt fund, which is, like I said, is a really deliberately big box, um, all property types, really all geographies. We, we like to focus in the Southeast, um, very sensitive to stories, et cetera. Our, our equity funds are much more you know, kind of tightly focused. And that is we're very focused Southeast, all the markets that I mentioned earlier. And then on, as far as the property type goes, we, we call them needs-based real estate. And really what it boils down to is all housing related. So our, our core competence and what we develop and look to acquire are uh, class A multifamily on the development side. Uh, we buy workforce housing, uh, we buy and develop student housing, and then we do a little bit of uh, for sale condominium product as well. And I should say, I'm, I'm leaving this out, unfortunately, but a single family home build a rent is a growing portion of our portfolio, but all in this space of residential living needs-based real estate in the southeastern U.S. Okay. And and I know you're in a bunch of different markets. And, and I think if I go too far back, you know, you would tell me, well, that's that's kind of before you had narrowed perhaps some of your geographic focus. But how do you guys think about penetrating specific markets? Uh, you know, you had just mentioned Knoxville, Nashville, Orlando, um, Huntsville. Um, how do you guys think about, okay, if we're going to go into this market, then the following, you know, just in terms of... It, it takes a while to learn a market, to figure out where pricing is, to figure out where rents are, to understand who your team's going to be, maybe on the property management side, the general contracting side. I just wonder how you guys go, okay, let's let's go after this market and then, and then what has to happen. Yeah, you're, you're spot on, Kevin. It's, it's easy to identify. It's not terribly easy, but easy enough to identify markets on paper. That makes sense. It's a different ballgame to get into a market and be effective on executing a business plan on the real estate side. So for us, it does start, if you think of it as a funnel, really high level, some target markets, whereas their population growth, job growth, uh, corporate expansions are are taking place. Um, uh, Generally, it it accompanies with a a lower tax base, uh, great schools. So there's all kinds of 
filters that we run, run things through to identify markets that we want to be in. After that, once we do find a market, you know, we've got uh, folks on staff here that are doing nothing but you know, call them business development or uh, uh, origination folks, be it on the equity side or the debt side, that then go into those markets and it's, it's, it's time to make inroads. Thankfully, you know, at T2, we've got you know, well over a thousand different investors from all around the country. When we do identify a market, you know, to say Orlando, for, for example, we've got a few already very solid contacts in Orlando that might know, you know, that perspective, be it attorney or accountant or even, you know, real estate folks, that might be a, um, a real timely introduction. And we just try to make inroads from there. It doesn't happen overnight. It often takes years to really build a sufficient rapport, build some credibility in the real estate market uh, in a given city, and then to really have a, a, a presence down there. But we do, you know, once we do get into a market, identify a site, the, the goal is to go there and scale. Um, you know, these target markets that we have, I could count on two hands. We're not trying to go into a, a, a market, do one project, uh, Lord willing, go through a, a big liquidity event, sell it and be done. If, if we really like a market, we want to go in at scale, do multiple projects, uh, get to know the city real well, get get ingratiated with the, the community and with the market as a whole. And then oftentimes we find that that deals find us at that point in time. And that's certainly the case, you know, a market that you're familiar with is, you know, Kissimmee, Florida, right there where Disney is. We, that started in 2019, identifying a, a hotel property for conversion to multifamily. Uh, once we kind of started that project, started to have some early success, it wasn't long thereafter that other hoteliers or other, uh, certainly other brokers, but other uh, third-party professionals down there in the Kissimmee market were reaching out to us saying, hey, I saw or I see what you're doing at this one property. I've got a client or I know somebody or I am that person that's looking to sell a comparable property and would love it if somebody would contemplate what you guys are doing over there. And so that that rapport goes a long way toward developing deal flow and um, you know something that we're very mindful of and, and grateful for at the end of the day. Yep. And look, our... our- my awareness of T2 and you individually is through CrowdStreet. I am an LP investor on that. Uh, I think it was your second hotel to multi-conversion yep. um, down there. And and so obviously on that deal, you went out and, and secured LP equity. Does the, the GP fund and that strategic orientation to be GT, GPs, um, on the equity platform, do you always accompany that with a uh, third party LP or how do you guys structure capital for the top part of the, the capital stack above the debt? Yeah. For, so for our GP fund, um, it is just as you described, Kevin. So we, we come in, the fund is the, the GP, the sponsor in the deal. And we're raising uh, not only debt for a given project, assuming uh, that we do want debt, but also LP capital to come alongside us. So you know, there's a couple different real positives to that that I see. Um, the, the major one being the concurrence that's involved. It's back to, you know, seeking feedback from the market, doing sanity checks and making sure that we're not completely out in left field. Um, I, I do value the fact that you know, we've identified a market, we've identified a property, we've got a business plan. Um, we have performance, we have all the spreadsheets you can imagine to, um, to effectively present and underwrite something. But now, uh, to go to the capital markets in the debt space, to go to the LP field, 
and, and test the waters for a given project is really valuable to me. So I, I, I like the concurrence that comes with uh, having two sets of investment groups, lender and LP, looking at each deal of ours, ultimately signing off and going forward with us. I think that's, um, that, that's a concurrence I, I really value. Yeah, understood. Kind of a check your own underwriting, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, I want to go back. You mentioned, at least on the equity side, you know, having staffed up a bit. In particular, you mentioned having a couple of GCs who can serve as an effective owner's rep and maybe in a downside um, scenario, step in and, and take over some things if things are kind of falling apart. What do these two strategies, the debt portfolio versus the equity portfolio, look like from a, a headcount perspective? How many, how many people have you got on each of these? So uh, short answer is growing. As we sit today, uh, we have 15 employees at T2, just hired somebody last week, actually have another offer letter going out today. Um, so we are historically, you know, say, uh, let me get some exact numbers for you. I think in 2021, we were 11 people strong. And all of us were, for the most part, generalists. There were a couple of specialists on the debt side, on the equity side, development, whatever the case is. But for the most part, we were generalists. All of us have a really good, uh, I'm biased, of course, but a really good handle on the real estate market as a whole. They can transition really quickly from talking debt to talking equity, talking development, talking rehab, whatever the case may be. But as we've grown, particularly in the last couple of years, we've started to focus a little bit more on, on building teams dedicated to the debt strategy or, or to the development strategy. Still have a fair amount of generalists which are invaluable and, and help us to get a great purview of what's going on in the market. It's, I really, I'm, I'm really grateful for us as lenders are able to talk about deals and whatnot. And that, that translates really well to how we're able to perceive what a, what a equity or development deal might look like. So that sort of, um, that sort of you know, purview across the landscape is, is really invaluable. But so as we sit now, you know, 15 people, uh, you know, really four on the debt side, about an equal amount on the equity side, and then the rest of us being generalists that navigate between the two. The intent, particularly with the opening of our Nashville office later this year, is to, is to grow both the debt and the equity team, really build a robust asset management platform um, and continue to, to do what we're doing as best we can. And look, we're um, all of us in this industry subject to cycles. They, um, you know, they happen. We're all driving by the same data and we all sort of pull on the yoke of the, the airplane the same time, the same way. And, and because of that, we overshoot and we undershoot. How do you think about building a team with some scale and the um, fixed operational overhead that comes along with that um, when it is sort of juxtaposed against the inevitability of cycles. How, how do you guys resolve the potential conflicts between those two? Yeah, so such a good question, Kevin. It, it is something that I wrestle with a lot. And I, it's funny looking back after 12 years now, I do kick myself a bit for being too, um, probably too conservative too careful not to hire people when we should have. We're, we're growing, we were young, still figuring stuff out, uh, still getting a lot of feedback from the market as we're trying to figure out what strategies to build upon going forward. 
and uh, and missed some opportunities, frankly, to, to hire some really good, skilled people that would fit in really well culturally here. Um, so now we're trying to you know overcome that. We feel very good, very high convicted, highly convicted about the strategies that we have in place, uh, what we're executing on, even in this turbulent market that we're in. So trying to take a bit of a counter approach where where layoffs are the you know topic du jour in the in the press and across the tech sector and whatnot, we're building, we're staffing up. It's not to say that we're staffing up indiscriminately. That's that's far from the truth. Um, but we are staffing up with ambitions of growing our platform and and, and probably making up for some lost ground uh, over the past few years. I was too conservative to to hire people. Very very mindful of not overstaffing. Understand that. Again, we, we can't control macroeconomic variables. Inevitably, there will come time where, um, you know, there's just not the, it's just not the right time to be doing development. Um, arguably, that's the case right now, even. It's just really hard to, to make numbers work. But what I don't want to do is, is, uh, is be forced, be, be confronted with layoffs. We're going to maintain a strong balance sheet. We're going to maintain a great culture that people want to be at and show up to work every day and, uh, and be proactive about not, overstaffing, but it is, it is a delicate balance. That's an interesting point that you touch on there. And, and, you know, the other thing you mentioned that just sparks curiosity for me is getting to a point where it's clear to you that having specialists is um, an intelligent move. And I wonder what has transitioned for you that you would go from having a team of athletes who can all potentially fill in different roles across the entire value chain to say, I just need a javelin thrower and, and you go out and, and you hire, you know, that sort of specialist. What, what transition has, has, uh, what, what was the catalyst and, and what do you expect to get from putting a, a more narrowly defined expertise into the, the team? Yeah, I think I think it comes with scale, to be honest with you. When, when we're young and growing and still, still, you know, trying to figure out how big do we want to be? Where do you want to be when you grow up sort of thing? I think having that nimble athlete type person that you're describing is invaluable. You, you got to be able to wear multiple hats. Um, you got to be able to see things from different perspectives. Um, but as, as you scale and as you build conviction around a, a business thesis or an investment thesis, whatever the case is, and you can see how success uh, is realized, uh, like in the debt space, having really quality underwriters and I mean, even, even folks, you know, to help on the loan closings, just to coordinate loan closings, to service the loan post-closing, to provide invoices, all those things that seem, might seem a little bit trite or too specialized when you're still building a business become really important down the road. And again, I say it's with scaling because with scale becomes a broader audience of, in our case, it's, it's investors and it's borrowers on the debt side. And so it's a, you know, there's a level of sophistication that comes to the table, especially in a market like today, our debt fund is really counter-cyclical. And so we're, we're as active today as we've ever been, despite the chill in the lending market that exists right now more, more broadly. And, uh, and so our, our folks that are, are really adept at underwriting, the folks that have lived through distress in the past and have stories to tell, have uh, anecdotes to share and apply to how we structure or underwrite or service something today, uh, I, I think becomes more and more valuable. And, and certainly, um, I would say it is 
you know, it is valuable, but then the market would tell you just from a perception standpoint, it's more valuable. Thus, the, the very institutional borrower that may not have borrowed from us historically takes a little more comfort in borrowing from us, knowing that we have that sort of skill set uh, in-house and, uh, and ready to service and help them uh, to get from A to B on the bridge lending side. Yeah, I love it. And look, in, in my business, um, we have conversations just kind of around cognitive load, right? How much diversity of thought and spectrum of, of mm, I'll just say the caseload, can any one person um, address successfully before there's there's simply there's just too much, right? You're you're switch tasking too frequently across too much uh, bandwidth, and it dilutes you. Um, when when I hear you talk about these specialists, to to just give them a lane that's narrowly defined where they can be exceptional, um, I don't know. It sounds like a really good fit. Yeah, that that certainly resonates with me, Kevin. I I, I would. Um... I would tell you our best hires, you know, every single one of our employees are, are incredible hires, but there, there's just this, I find this consistently with, with my friends and then even at T2, there's a general reticence to hire somebody uh, because uh, you don't want to let go of a given task. You either really enjoy it, you're really good at it, or it's, you know, in, in your mind, it's just that important. However, when you do find that right person, uh, that you can ultimately entrust to carry that weight, to, to do that, you know, the load like you're describing, and, and you watch that in action, it, it's, it's an unbelievable just sense of satisfaction that comes with, my goodness, like, look, at, look at us grow. Now that I have more bandwidth, I can think more clearly. I need to do these other things, particularly as a CEO or a CIO and somebody in that sort of role. There's enough on your plate already to, to do stuff and have to do it quickly or to do it at, you know, in the wee hours of the night or early in the morning, uh, simply because there's no other time in, in your day. It, it just, there's, it's very, very satisfying uh, to see in action where you've, you've hired somebody for a skill, they do it really well, and, it, and they've removed that from your plate. It's, I, I can't echo what you said enough. Just Yeah, I mean, the visual that comes up for me, and I'm probably hamstrung by speaking in analogy too much, but you know, you started this fire and you were running out into the woods and getting every stick and making sure that thing kept burning and burning and burning. And it's gotten bigger and it's gotten bigger. And all of a sudden you can step back and there are other people putting the wood on there for you. And all of a sudden you have a business that's considerably bigger than you. And I, you know, I don't think we can call you, uh, you're probably on the bubble between a, a small and a medium business, but, um, that is, it resonates deeply with me where you can, where you can step back and actually see that there's a business that has a a going concern value proposition that is no longer necessarily requiring you to put the wood on every single day. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And that, and that ultimately driving value for the company is just an ancillary benefit as well. It's just, it's, um, Learning to let go is a really key component, I think, of, of a lot of leaders and entrepreneurs. Agreed. So slightly different tack here. What do you think is the one thing that's most holding T2 back right now? Hmm. Wave your magic wand, you know, remove that constraint. <laughs> and and what, what is the constraint? Yeah, that's a great question. I, 
honestly, I'd, I'd have to think about that. There's certainly a lot that, that does preoccupy my time. I'm very grateful. Uh, I'll, I'll give you like a real life antidote. Again, here I sit in Chicago. This is where our, you know, our headquarters, if you will, is that uh, 12, 13 of us uh, reside every day. Um, being in Chicago and kind of being swept up in all that's going on in the Chicago market in Illinois as a whole has been hard. Um, so I'm, we're, we're certainly not immune to that. We've, like I said, we've repositioned our focus to be in growth markets, which have led us to the Southeast. For the longest time, that was true. And I struggled to pull the trigger on opening an office down South. And, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of us even talk about moving, um, not pulling the trigger on moving, but I'm very grateful to have identified um, an office in Nashville. We're going to dress that up and it's going to be really nice when we open up later this summer. Um, but I think that that has been a hindrance for a while is to be you know, in a market that, you know, that we live in, yet not be really active and in investing in that market, despite the fact that our deepest, best relationships emanate from this Chicago market as well. So um, that has been something that preoccupies a fair amount of my time. Um, you know, beyond that, really, it's it's just, you know, being well-informed and taking it a day at a time, knowing full well the, the market is, you know, an adjective we keep using here is, is turbulent. It's very, very fluid. And just being smart and wise and, and nimble uh, to, to take action when we need to take action and to step back when we need to step back. That's, that sort of discipline is, is imperative every day, but especially magnified in times like this. Yeah, and look, just speaking to your success and, and that, that um, idea of stepping back, right? Early on, I suspect uh, everything's on the line. That, that deal one, that deal two, that deal number four, they have to work out. And, and you alluded to a little bit of adversity when you were backing LPs. And so you probably skinned your knee a little bit here and there in the journey. But clearly at this point, um, it doesn't seem like there's a lack of opportunity flow that's coming to T2. I, I wonder how things have changed for you. The visual I've, I've heard explained, you know, in the beginning of your career, you're putting messages in, a, in the little glass bottle from your <clears throat> desert island and sending them out and you're just hoping for one or two to come back. Later in your career, there's just all these bottles with messages washing up on the shore, which is where I envision you guys how are you managing that kind of uh, condition as, as this really, you know, it seems like you guys are transitional kind of hockey stick point in the, in the evolution of T2. Sure. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And I'll, I tell you, it, it's, it's another um, real learning moment, certainly learning period of time to skin your knee. Like you said, there's, there are, <laughs> There are a lot of scars on these knees uh, from doing things wrong and, and having regrets and wishing I could go back in time. But you can't, obviously. You got you to gotta get up on your feet. You got to uh, brush yourself off and, and go forward and, and learn from, uh, from past mistakes is the, the approach that we take. Um, thankfully, we're still standing here despite those scars and despite those skin knees. And so I think uh, – while super grateful for these you know, proverbial bottles coming on the shore and the inbound inquiries that we get uh, to provide financing or to buy a property or to consider developing here, there, or, or anywhere, 
um, super appreciative of those invitations and those requests. I think the greatest discipline that comes, a lot of it for me anyway, born from the, the pain of, of not doing things as well as we could have in the past is the discipline of saying no. Um, and it's hard and, it, and some people don't take it particularly well, uh, but it's what's best for you and the team in the long run. And so, uh, again, super grateful for the, uh, for what we've got today. And, and it's a, it is a flood of inquiries coming our way as, as the capital markets are, are largely just really tepid, if not, you know, really chilled right now. Um, but trying to be disciplined to, to say, Hey, not just because they're knocking on a door, just because it's in the right market, just because it is that person or something like that doesn't mean it's an automatic. Yes. There's a scrutiny that we all have to go through. Uh, there's a collaboration, there's a concurrence that needs to take place that we're all comfortable with uh, before we give a firm green light to something. And, and that, that discipline to, you know, put, put an opportunity through its process, uh, build consensus and, and then proceed with a, a fully informed decision. Yes or no is uh, is a great discipline that we try to adhere to here. And the people that you just mentioned who sometimes don't like to hear no are those partners, investors, employees, clients, like maybe all of the above. I'm curious where that shows up. Yeah, it, it, it does cross the gamut. Um, on our debt lending side, of, of course, borrowers don't like to be told no. Um, I, I will say we, we do try to start on the lending side with start with yes and, and then, you know, have to defend it. Um, but, you know, no is the, the conclusion that we come to like, you know, 98% of the time. Um, so we do try to start with an optimistic perspective and cite the merits of a deal before really pouring through things to cite some weaknesses. Um, so it is, you know, borrowers, of course, don't like to be told no, but uh, certainly there, there are employees, um, you know, many of whom, just speaking frankly, might have some compensation on the line if we yep. do or don't do a deal. Uh, they don't want to know. And so, the, you know, I find the real the real rock star employees are those that can, as hard as it is, if not impossible, to be objective about something, they, they're they even keel and they get it. And we're trying to do things for the greater good of, of T2, of, uh, of our investors, and, and try to, you know, to you know, trying to paint a, a multi-generational picture here for a sustainable company, not just trying to do a deal so that, you know, we, we survive today and tomorrow, but in two years, boy, we're, we're facing the music and on, on death's door at that point in time. Um, so it's a, it's a rare employee that can, that can get to that phase, but I'm, I know uh, that we have them here at T2 that, that can maintain a bigger picture in mind, but it is, it is hard. Uh, it's not terribly hard, but it, it's hard to hear no, for a lot of people. And is multi-generational part of uh, the culture that you alluded to before? That is. And it, it gets into, you know, some of these business theses and these investment theses that we're so bullish and convicted on. You know, we've talked at length about the debt fund. It's perpetual. It's coming up on its nine-year anniversary. I'm thrilled with where we are, what, what we've done, and where we're going. Our opportunistic GP fund in which we raise the LP capital and and seek lenders for, for each deal has tremendous legs. We've done extraordinarily well uh, on the GP side of the ledger. And then, you know, we're just coming out of the out of the shoots with a, a workforce housing dedicated open-ended fund that could very conceivably be a, a public reach someday. Um, but the, the notion is to build a business, to scale it, um, 
you know, it's like what you alluded to earlier, Kevin, you got to do these, you know, these first one, two, three, four deals really well and, and provide a springboard to doing additional deals down the road. I, I wish I could tell you, I, I still feel a little bit like chicken little, like we're, we're still dealing with deals one, two, three, and four, where we, we just try to box in as much risk as we possibly can see and underwrite and, and, uh, and generate great returns and, and know full well that it's a self-fulfilling cycle. If you, if you do well now, uh, chances are the snowball builds and you're going to do have at least an opportunity to do really well down the road as well. So, um, yeah, but building something generationally on those three legs of a stool is, uh, is the plan at this point. And success definitely begets success. Um, you guys have shown to, to be very effective at, at raising capital, which, you know, right at the very beginning of it, you said, well, look, the, the first step, if I'm going to run a real estate private equity firm is I've got to be able to get capital. Um, you know, what, what has been your approach? What has been your mindset to raising capital? What sort of pitfalls or tips or tricks or, uh, you know, I mean, it is not an easy thing to go get a thousand people to say, I like Jeff Brown, I like T2, here's 25,000, here's 250,000, here's 2.5 million. I'm sure you have them all across the spectrum. Um, you know, what's working, what doesn't work? What, what would you put out there for the other real estate entrepreneurs, whether they're creating discretionary funds or they're just looking for their first LP on their first project? Sure. And I, I do think it's, you know, that too, like everything else, it is a bit of a learning curve, has been a learning curve for us. Um, there is an unquestionable need uh, to be trustworthy. Um, you know, and, and part of that manifests itself with, you know, it, it's easy to report the wins. It's easier to report the, the big gains and whatnot. It's not so easy to report when things are, are uh, you know, not going according to pro forma or even losses and whatnot. And so I'm, I'm always mindful of, trying to be proactive about communicating everything clearly and plainly, trying to, you know, kind of drain emotion out of the picture and report objectively. Um, lots of phone calls, uh, certainly lots of emails and whatnot, but just being communicative, being trustworthy, um, adhering to a strategy. If, you know, if, if you told me that this is what the fund is, is targeting is going to do, then, then, then stick with that. Don't, don't have some style drift that suddenly, uh, comes into the picture and, and uh, you know, and clouds investors' perception of whether or not you're trustworthy at the end of the day. So it's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of those kind of foundational sort of components. And then, you know, there, it's, it's really hard to replace success. Um, I'm very, you know, success in the terms of uh, economic returns and financial returns. So if I, I have found, um, and I think we have found collectively at T2, if you're if you can be trustworthy, do what you say you're going to do, be communicative, and then deliver results. Um, that's that's really what it boils down to at the end of the day. And I'm, I'm confident that most any other fund manager would, would tell you the same thing. Yeah. And because I have the benefit of a previous conversation with you, um, you had also mentioned just doing the work, right? And, and if you, if you want to touch on that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, uh, you had mentioned, you know, the early mornings and, and all of that. No, it's, um, I think part of it is being an entrepreneur. Part of it is, you know, CEO and, and really trying to do, uh, as best you can for as many people as you can. And, 
so yeah, it's, get into my day a little bit. I, I'm an early riser. I like to be at the office really early. I like to kind of get calibrated for the day um, and, and, and get to work, like you said. And so it's a lot of, you know, the days of nine to five are long gone and have been for a long time uh, for, for virtually everybody. Um, but, you know, there's a handful of us that show up early that really uh, get after it. Our office is very intentionally open and collaborative. So a lot of talking and sharing going on. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, you know, well before sunrise and, and you know, sometimes uh, working late at night uh, after the kids are in bed as well, just to make sure you're staying on top of things. And again, staying communicative and making sure people are in the know. Um, it, it's not to say that it's overbearing by any means. It's just, it just comes with the turf and it's part of, you know, when you have aspirations of building something generationally, that just, that, that's just what, what's required. And uh, at least from my vantage point. So that's what we're, trying to do here. And I've got a great, incredible team of people uh, that share that vision and, and share that work ethic as well. So I, am, I feel very fortunate. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, look, thanks for sharing so much on the business side. Let's move over to the personal. What about the end of the day? Like what, what makes you feel relief? How do you kick up your feet and, and unplug? Uh, and and what's, what's, what's the juice outside of business for you? Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. So I'm I'm grateful to share. I'm married for 26 years. I have five incredible kids. Um, part of the beauty of being an entrepreneur and, and part of what I try to foster here at T2 is um, the understanding that none of us are defined by what we do at work or in my humble opinion, shouldn't be defined by what we do at work. No doubt it is a meaningful uh, component to what a lot of us do. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I want people to have adequate time with their family, with their spouse, with their kids. Uh, we talk all the time about, uh, just, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, one of my kids is a golfer. He says, he said, dad, the, you know, the weather is pretty nice out. I think I, I like to golf today. I'm like, that's, that's great, buddy. And he asked me, would you like to caddy for me? I'm like, Are you kidding me? So I, <laughs> that freedom to go caddy for my son who wants to go golf. And I encourage the same of our of our staff here. Um, so I, again, I understand the importance of work, and, and there are no shortcuts. You know, work is a grind, and you got to build systems and processes that are as efficient as possible. But at the end of the day, it, a lot of it boils down to grit and tenacity and creativity, and, and figuring out better ways to do things. Um, but certain personal things, be it family, faith, uh, travel. Um, unplugging all of it is just part of who we are. And, and, and I think, you know, what a lot of us need to do. And I want to encourage that to provide more of a holistic perspective to, you know, for all of us, at least here at T2 and hopefully more. Mm. And, and look, clearly you guys have been successful, right? I mean, to go from, Hey John, let's do a deal. Let's do two, let's do three to, uh, you know, we've put out, several hundred billion or sorry, 1.5 billion yeah. over the, the past 10, 12 years. Um, what, what in your mind does it take to be successful in this business? That's a great question. And this is part of what I wrestle with, with our advisory board is, you know, how, how do you define success? And I tell you, you know, there's, there's just such a, a piece about 
again, in conviction about what we're doing, our business strategies right now, um, um, albeit, you know, balanced with let's not, you know, I, I, I won't be the guy that, you know, that works a hundred hours a week. My kids won't let me, um, but I'll, you know, I'll take it to the max, but we, you know, we know what we need to do for us that raise discretionary funds. It starts with really a fund thesis and setting expectations for prospective investors. And so our, our goals are always to meet or exceed those expectations, uh, whatever that means. And so we'll work as long as possible, long as hard as possible. But like I shared earlier, you know, there, we might fall short. There's some stuff that is just out of our control. We want to be forthright. Uh, I've always said in any sort of conflict, you want to you know, understand the issue, own, own your part of it, and then do whatever possible that you can do to, to amend a broken relationship. And so that's, you know, we're, we're about meeting or exceeding expectations, setting clear expectations on the front end, meeting or exceeding those over the long haul. And if something does fall short, owning it and, and trying to make it right. Um, we're having a lot of fun here at T2. I'd be uh, remiss not to share that. I, I don't take other people's words and just throw those out there. I, I get affirmed by that a lot. And that's really, really meaningful to get the, the token emails or texts or even words that people share with me about just, you know, the, the fun and fulfillment that they find here. And I, I don't take that lightly and tend to build on that for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Well, look, that's pretty, you know, set your strategy, set your thesis and expectations, and then um, do the work if you find yourself you know, stubbing your toe and, and kind of in a, um, bruised relationship, but go, go to the other side. Um, we probably all know plenty of successful people. Um, anything pops in mind if I ask you, you know, what's the most common mistake you see successful people make? Huh? Yeah. Um, again, every, every person's so different. Um, I, I do spend a fair amount of time. I, I love reading about the Titans in business that are out there. And, you know, the, uh, probably the names that you're thinking of are the very names I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. But I tell you what I, what I do see over and over again is they reach this pinnacle status. Uh, they are widely revered around the country. They have incredible amounts of wealth. Um, but you know, it, it's back to me. It, it's things like how, how is their family? Are, are they truly, are they truly happy or joyous at home? Um, and that, that's right. I guess, you know, I can get way too philosophical about this, but I, I do think about a big picture and a holistic picture of, yes, it, it is awesome that so-and-so built this company and sold it for X billions of dollars. And they now own this many houses and drive this car, or this boat or whatever the case is. But you know, are there, how are their kids? Uh, um, do they have fun with, with all those toys? Uh, do they have a, a piece about them internally that are they truly satisfied? Um, so those are the, I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to be any sort of tight or anything like that, but I, I do in, in my own very, very small way, want to balance worldly business success with, uh, you know, success at home and among you know, my friends and whatnot as well. I just, you know, try to just try to be, you know, big picture oriented and, and know full well that things can change on a moment's notice and, uh, and, uh, be grateful for what we've got. And every day is a gift. So those yeah, are well, and, and it's also losing, well, <clears throat> actually that's an interesting 
topic. It, it may be the case that those Titans' objective was simply to win, and the scorecard is money. Um, in which case, hey, more power to you. Um, but I, what I'm hearing you say is, if if your why is something other than that, then how are you feeling when all you end up with is money? Right. Right. Trying to have the why in alignment with your professional pursuits. That's a great way of putting it. I, and I. I've heard that before and I obviously didn't articulate it, but you know, making sure you're answering your why and, uh, and managing each day accordingly is, is a big part of what I try to do. Yeah. And look, you've, you've alluded to it a couple of times in the conversation in terms of your outlook and, and beliefs um, on the daily routine side of things. Um, for myself personally, like I just try to get my head in the game and, and align to um, – what I'm up to as a person. And if I can start my day that way, I feel like I have a better chance of staying on track to the end of the day. And if I can string a bunch of those together, mm-hmm. um, I might be a better person and, and have a sort of better trajectory. How about, how about yourself on uh, any daily routines you might have to, to kind of um, excel in your own way, if, if there is anything. Sure. And I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, again, some of these Titans that we all think of certainly have, you know, they share publicly what their day looks like. And I've, I've tried to glean and learn from a few of those. My, my day personally is I'm a, I'm an early riser. Um, my, my best thinking typically happens, you know, quickly after I wake up. And so I'm, I'm generally at the office pretty early, uh, after a time of just kind of, you know, calibrating, uh, thanking God that I woke up and that I have this, you know, special day of life and, um, getting to the office and, and getting to work, uh, setting the table. There's a, a few other early morning warriors that join me at the office. So it's pretty fun. The, the two or three of us that are generally here each, each morning before the sunrise. And, um, yeah, it's, it's hard work throughout the morning. I, I generally take my lunch to, uh, to read and to catch up. I, I love, you know, stuff like the wall street journal, um, some industry periodicals that come out um, just again, staying grounded and checking in at home, that kind of thing, finishing the day. It's not uncommon for me to be out by four ish or something like that to get to one of my kids events. I try to be proactive about exercising each day. Uh, It's in the afternoon when my brain is starting to turn to mush. Hmm. Um, And then, uh, you know, family dinners are important. It doesn't certainly doesn't happen every night, but all of us being around the table uh, as, as much as we can is meaningful. Um, it's not uncommon for me to, you know, kind of plug back in as an entrepreneur, you're always plugged in, you know, the, the phone, uh, if you wanted to, we'll, we'll keep you fully tethered. Um, but really plug back in at night, say nine o'clock or something like that, where I'm, I'm back on and just making sure things are good, tying up what needs to be tied up and being ready for the next day before going to bed. And I've got a house full of late night people. Uh, so I, by the time I'm cashing out, everybody else is still awake. And, and so I get to, you know, hug them goodnight or something like that. And little things like that are meaningful, but that's, that's generally what comprises a typical day for me. That's, that's great. Um, and look, you've had a fruitful partnership. It appears with John and not all partnerships are um, built for 10 plus years of collaboration. Um, any principles you have that have guided that or continue to guide it and, and keep you guys on the, you know, alignment. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's, it's been really fun with John. We, we went into this, um, 
John in particular ha has had incredible business success. He, he started a company called PowerShares with a, another partner, had a big liquidity event when they sold to Invesco. It's that liquidity event that helped, you know, in a small way, really start T2 and doing those one-off deals that he and I did before starting T2 even. Uh, John uh, is just completely selfless. He, he wants me to just run T2. He likes being the passive, the passive owner and whatnot. And so what the, we've had some, I'd say just, you know, some fairly tense conversations through the years on, on various topics, but always it's, it's with this common bond of like, listen, we were very, very good friends and, and that's, that's not going to change. I'm not going to let business stand in the way of it's back to, you know, trying to keep relationships intact, not letting them break. And so we've had some meaningful, necessary conversations, but it, um, John lets me run the, the show. And conversely, I'm a partner with him on a different business that I completely let him run the show. And so we're, we're very, in healthy ways, I think, very passive cheerleaders for each other. Uh, there's an incredible amount of trust that comes with that. Um, and so, you know, thankfully, we live within 10 minutes of each other. We get together for breakfast fairly often and, and uh, always catch up. Our kids are similar ages. So it's, uh, it's, it's a friendship first. Um, it's being able to, to deal with tough questions when they do come up and, and um, they're not always easy, but, uh, but coming to an understanding of, hey, listen, you know, you, I need to let go of this or I need to be in charge of this and, and, and having a, a mutual understanding of, of who's doing what that has led to a very, a very, very um, great partnership and, and more than that, just broader friendship. Mm. That's solid. So look, I, like I said, I don't want to keep you too, too long. A couple more questions here for you. You, you have mentioned, um, you've alluded to the fact that you guys have really good deal flow across the different platforms. And obviously you've been active in different markets, which makes me think there must be a significant network that's been established over the year, the years. Um, what are your thoughts on the whole you know, sort of network aspects of your business, grow, growing the network, maintaining it? Um, utilizing it, how, how does it uh, land for you in the day-to-day, -day, both as a person and, um, you know, within the business? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Kevin. It's, it is a bit of a $64,000 question in real estate too, is how do you generate deal flow and not just deal flow, but really compelling, actionable, viable deal flow. And it, again, it's back to relationships. Certainly any of us can uh, get the email blast from, from brokers around the country um, but our best deal flow is with really unique relationships. It's not to say that we're exclusive. We are on some, um, but we are amongst a, a handful of groups with others. And, and generally it does start with, you know, it, it, brokers are certainly helpful, but it is, uh, attorneys and it is accountants. Um, I'll give you a, just a real life example of something we're working with right now. We, we are finishing a, a very high end residential condominium project in Naples, Florida right now. Uh, we, we have made it known, you know, we've been trying to do more down there where we bought another piece of ground, but we'd love to do more for sale product down in Naples, Florida. Uh, we have gotten to know some of the residential brokers that brought buyers to our project that we're about to deliver down in Naples. One of those brokers, you know, through conversation, just kind of building rapport and whatnot, reached out to me just last week and said, hey, listen, um, 
after months of kind of holding out for top dollar, I, I'm under the impression that this property that you might have been looking at a few months ago, uh, the seller is now realistic. Um, would you want to re-engage? Um, so we are re-engaged in a conversation on a property that was just, you know, it's back to the conversation we had earlier, was priced according to March 2022 parameters mm-hmm. and not 23. So that that has set in. But were it not for this almost serendipitous relationship with a residential broker on a property that we're about to deliver down in Naples, were it not for having that relationship and him feeling confident enough to reach out to us at T2 and to start that conversation, you know, this, this is a complete off-market deal, which is how many uh, deals are, I think, for, for seasoned real estate investors. But uh, the complete off-market deal that we're going to take a hard run at. We already know the property. We know the market. And I think there's a decent probability that we'll execute on a purchase down there because of the relationship with this residential broker. That's not how uh, the, the most deal flow happens if you look at your email traffic or something. It is, it's very serendipitous. So there's a, a, just a ton to be said. There's probably books to be written about the value of relationships. Uh, you know, you touched on it earlier in the bridge lending space, being somebody that honors your word and, and keeps a relatively simple process simple. There's no tripwires. We're not looking to, you know, claim default on somebody. We're not looking to, we're just, we're trying to be a bridge to get people from A to B. And we truly just want to high five at the end of the day and, and celebrate when we're paid off because somebody executed on their business strategy. I just adhering to that, honoring your word, um, being approachable, being available, those kind of, you know, little things that seem pretty trite really matter, I think, at the end of the day and have led to great deal flow for us at T2. Yeah, awesome. All right. So, uh, you have left a lot of kernels on the table here for the entrepreneur who, who will undoubtedly be listening in. Um, any message you'd like to provide to, you know, the real estate entrepreneurs reading regarding, um, you know, either personal growth, growth or business growth, um, anything maybe that you wish you would have learned sooner? Boy, Kevin, your questions are so good. I'll tell you a couple of things that jump out at me. One is from one of my professors at University of Chicago. Uh, he, he's very technical, um, data oriented, which I love. You know, he, he would be the first to tell you that, and I, his, his, his words still ring in my ears today, vintage matters. So if you're thinking about in terms of real estate and being an entrepreneur, maybe there's some out there that are contemplating, boy, I, I want to go try my first fund or even get into the business at this point is now a good time. I would argue that whether this is an aberration in time or not, now is a really intriguing time to get into the space and take advantage of what looks like a really compelling vintage, 2023-24, where there is enough distress out there um, and, and people can get, you know, really compelling properties at pretty compelling basis and, and Lord willing, build a business from there. So I think, you know, vintage really matters. And then the other thing I would say to prospective entrepreneurs and, and something I've had to get comfortable with is, you know, there's just this ambiguity in this kind of living in the gray that comes from trying to build and, and lead a company. Nobody has all the answers. Again, books are written and, and the, you know, the management experts are out there holding conferences and whatnot, but anybody that tells you they have all the answers, I think is, is not telling the, the truth. 
Um, there are always situations that come up where I feel completely overwhelmed and out over my skis. And I'm so grateful for sounding boards that I have in my life to, to bounce things off of. And, and I, you know, you do your best to make the, the wisest, most unselfish decision that you can. And, and then you, you know, Lord willing, you wake up the next morning and you get after it. Um, there are no you know, perfect answers to very difficult questions or, you know, what many are confronted with right now with prospective layoffs. Those are just horrible, but you, you got to deal with it. Uh, you got to, again, kind of welcome and acknowledge reality, but being comfortable living in that ambiguity where you're not going to have a perfect answer for every question is a, is a big part of being an entrepreneur. And I would just encourage people to not let that hold them back from taking that step if, if that's what they're considering. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Andreessen Horowitz, it's it's Mark Andreessen, and I can't remember the the Horowitz first name, but he has a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is what you're talking about right there, yeah. right? Like it it is hard, and all you do is do your best and get up and do it again. Right. Yeah, I got that book, and yeah, that's a good good uh, recommendation. Uh, Jeff, thank you very much for your time. Uh, if you want to leave. Contact info for the company, the website domain. Obviously, everybody's got Google as well for T2 Capital Management. Um, but anything else you want to leave here in closing, I'll I'll give you the mic. And then for anybody who's listened along thus far, if you would uh, take the time, my production guys always tell me to hop in there and, and offer a review on the podcast. Of course, it'd be very welcome. But Jeff, thank you for sharing your time with me. Uh, happy to do it, Kevin. Really appreciate you opening up the forum and, and uh, being able to share this kind of, uh, you know, a lot of stuff, uh, stub on your toe along the way to being able to share that with others and, and hopefully encourage them is, is uh, meaningful. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Great. Hey, thanks again, Jeff. Thank you.